You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 35. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader, and today we're discussing archaeological terms and how they're used in and out of the field. Ken and I both pick a couple of our pet terms and discuss how they're actually supposed to be used and how we see them get abused. Get ready to build your archaeological vocabulary. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the day is spent. Funny beady blokes. You will see are a staple of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. Today we are going to be talking about terms, archaeological terms that get abused or misused. Yeah, we we have our we have more than our share, I think. There are a lot of terms. I think the problem is with archaeology is we have a lot of fun sounding terms. Right. And people just like to run with it. So Yeah, and I think also it's it because it's it's different from say a, a subject or a discipline like physics, in which the terms are kind of unique to that discipline. With archaeology, a lot of the terms that we use are in vernacular, can be used in a vernacular way or are used by other disciplines. And so we have our own particular definition, our own particular use of those right. terms. And it's not always clear when I'm when I'm hearing other people use those terms back at me, it sometimes is clear to me that they're using them in ways that are not the ways archaeologists use that term. And those terms and and of course and archaeologists we also make up our own damn terms too. This is true. So we have words that you don't find I don't think you will find the term ecofact in the dictionary. No. Because it's a term that and maybe Binford, who actually, uh, if somebody can correct me if, out there if you if you know who made up the term ecofact, but that's the equivalent of an artifact, only it's not something that somebody has made and used. It's a piece of the environment, like a, like a bone from an animal that's been killed by a person or some wood that ended up in a fireplace because somebody cut down the tree and used it. So in those cases, those things aren't made by people, but they're there in an archaeological context because somebody, they're from the environment, somebody used them. And so a term that at least was commonly used, I think in the, more maybe in the 70s and 80s than now, is the term ecofact, which you won't find in a dictionary. It's it's our term. It's a neologism. Neologism. <laughs> which is which just sounds like a – doesn't it sound like a filthy word? It's a, that means something dirty. That's a porn word. No, it just I was, means a new, new I word. I was thinking it sounded like a Cthulhu god. <laughs> well, yeah, it could be that too. Absolutely. Neolithism. We yes. are summoning the great dark one, Neolithist. Well, I was just, uh, you know, I am not like, I'm pretty normal when it comes to eating. When I say normal, I'm really boring. And so I don't use a lot of spice in my cooking. And I've heard the word tarragon before. I never knew exactly what it was. Oh my God, tarragon's like my but, favorite herb, but go ahead. But the, the more I use, I, I repeated the word over and over and over in my head until it sounds like it should be something from a Lovecraft novel. Yeah. The tarragon, the people of the tarragon. The and tarragon. it's just something that, what does it taste like, like licorice or something. Um, well, we, before we get off on a tangent on Lovecraft. Oh, too late. <laughs> who I adore and is very dead, so he doesn't care if I adore him or not. Uh, yeah, so ecofact, that's a great word. 
I enjoy Ecofact a lot. Um, yeah. I've used it on my blog, actually, and I've had to define it on my blog a few times. Well, yeah, because, again, it's not something that you can look up and, you know, find it in a dictionary. It's I think it's you a can term. Google it. I, I think there's Oh, a, I'm sure, yeah. I think there's a Wikipedia entry anyway, so that makes it an official thing. There you go. Um, I don't know Wikipedia as I don't bother with, with Wikipedia very much. Um Oh no! I love Wikipedia. It's a good. I think Wikipedia is a good first step. You, you want to know something oh. about anything in the world? Look up. Look it up in Wikipedia. But I tell my students, if you <laughs> use it. Wikipedia in, in your references cited, that is a very bad thing because it's not a primary source. It's a. You know, it's not you even say that now. Source. You say that now, but I guarantee you, in another five years, you will actually legitimately be able to use Wikipedia as a resource and it Perhaps. would be completely yeah. acceptable. And listen, I'm not going to bitch about Wikipedia too much because you know, a lot of the topics, the subjects that we've um, talked about on this, uh, on this podcast, um, when I go and look them up just to kind of refresh my memory about these topics, I find that, that I am often cited on those Wikipedia <laughs> entries. So I think Wikipedia is just, it's just fantastic. Okay. Well, you know, what can I tell you? I do. So, I, no, 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 no. I get to say what I think. I like Wikipedia, but I don't have the time to be on there editing Wikipedia. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, we've got a fan that likes to listen to us, and I know that he is on Wikipedia quite a bit. And he sends me little tidbits every now and then. And I guess there's a back end to Wikipedia called the talk pages, where it's the talk from the people editing about the page they're editing. Oh, okay. So, like, it's a Wikipedia page within a Wikipedia page. It's very meta. Oh, that's um, cool. Yes. But I guess you and I both get bantered back and forth about on the talk pages, uh, especially on entries like, I think he sent me the one on the Koso Artifact or something. Oh, okay, remember. sure. People refuse to believe that the Koso Artifact is not a real thing. They just absolutely refuse to believe that. Yeah, listen, all we can do on this podcast is tell you what we know about these things and what the evidence is, and... You know, if folks want to ignore that or if they want to somehow dispute that, that's fine. That's that's fine. But they're wrong. <laughs> and that's, you know, but you're wrong. I, mean, I think, well, it's, you know, the bottom line here is I, we can't be too namby pamby about this. I mean, it's really OK for us to say, you know, we know a lot about this. And if you if you think we're wrong, I'm afraid not. But that's another issue. How about some words? What are what are other archaeology terms that you think? people often either misinterpret or misuse. So my number one term right now is, and I know you're probably tired of hearing me say it, but it's the uh, uh, archaeo... Crap, and I've forgotten it. Is it archaeoastronomy you're talking yes, about? Yes, thank you. Archaeoastronomy. <laughs> thank you, Ken. Yeah, archaeoastronomy. And that is a real word. It's a real term. It's actually an entire field for people who don't know. Sure. Um, and it is the study of... Uh, how ancient peoples used the celestial bodies, the stars, the sun, the moon, to align things on Earth. Uh, and those things can be mounds, they could be buildings, they could be, you know, just rock piles. They could yeah. be anything. But it is a legitimate field inside of archaeology. The problem right. that I have is... Um, and it's it's not just on uh, the History Network that you see this. You, you'll find it all over the internet. It gets abused a lot because people confuse astronomy with astrology. Oh, right. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of the the fringe element gets confused because 
they're looking at it from an aspect of astrology, not saying it's being aligned with like Scorpio and and Sagittarius and all that stuff, but they're, they're looking at it being way more metaphysical than it probably was. And they're also fine. They also try to find, they use archaeoastronomy as a way of explaining things that they can't explain, but that they want to connect. Sure. Yeah. Can I, can I give you like a three minute horrible story about that, Sarah? When I, when I, um, first started teaching this is in the late 1970s and i was um beginning to put together my archaeological frauds myths and mysteries course i had to write up for for the curriculum committee on campus um i had to write up a course description a proposed course description and in that course description a bunch of you know archaeological fakes and mysteries from and you know piltdown man cardiff giant to the archaeoastronomy of stonehenge because I wanted to throw in something there that was not not a fraud, not a myth, but still was kind of mysterious and interesting story about the past. And so when I sat in front of the curriculum committee and they all had read my course description, a person on the committee – now this is a person, understand, a professor with a PhD, not in a science, said uh, – objected strenuously saying that she was opposed to having a course on campus that taught astrology. And I said, no, 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 no. Oh, I see where you're you're making that mistake. Uh, if you read it carefully, you'll see it's archaeo astronomy, not astrology, astronomy. Yeah. And she responded, astronomy, astrology. What's the difference? Ouch. I, and it was like, how do you respond exactly? You look for that the hidden camera because wow. you guys are punking me, right? You know. To which the astronomy department went, excuse uh, you. I know it was very embarrassing, but yeah, I think that that actually is more common. Uh, a more common conflation or confusion than we like to believe that people don't understand. Yeah, it's probably the case that the earliest, some of the earliest historical references to the sky, uh, you could call these guys astrologers, and they're trying to interpret the stars right. in terms of, of it, uh, not so much personal horoscopes for people's um, um their their that that their personalities are being dis- defined by the stars or, or constellations they're born under, but looking at the sky as something that might be able to foretell the future. Um, and I think we're pretty sure that that Chinese early Chinese astronomers that their job was to watch that sky and to be able to explain anything weird that happened in that sky because the concern was that that might um, por- that those are portents that might mean something really bad was going to happen. But but yeah, it's it's really interesting to note. And you know what? If you think about it, Sarah, it's not really surprising, is it, that ancient people who lived first of all, they're living in an environment where there's not a lot of light pollution or, or air pollution, and so therefore they're seeing that sky really clearly, and they see these amazing the Milky Way and these apparent patterns in the sky and things like meteors and meteorites and comets and the, the waxing and waning of the moon. And that, I mean, to me, when I go out, on, I'm, I live in a pretty dark part, dark sky part of Connecticut, way up here in the Northwestern Hills. And when I go out, especially in the middle of the winter, I am blown away by what I see. And I've taken a couple of astronomy courses. And so I kind of know what I'm looking at. But certainly people in the past who didn't have any kind of scientific um, basis on which to interpret what they were seeing, I'm sure they were mightily impressed by it. 
and they try to understand it or keep track of it or yes to align buildings and walls um, to you know build those things to align with, with um, the heavens and that's really pretty cool yeah um, but it has nothing to do with you know whether you're a Sagittarius born with moon rising whatever the hell that means. I'm not going to say that that kind of stuff didn't happen in the past. We, oh, we, sure. have, we have no way of knowing because that didn't tend to survive. But the stuff that did survive at its base is aligning with the celestial bodies for the specific purpose of, you know, timekeeping. Um, right. You know, event keeping, that kind of stuff. Uh, well, we so have, that, as, yeah, as far back as we have, a, there's a 30,000 year old artifact from one of the caves in France in which it, it's like two and a half months of the phases of the moon etched into this antler plaque. Right. Um, and whether and that's calendar, maybe, or whether it's just they're seeing this pattern and and recognizing in that pattern something incredibly cool about the world. And so they write it down. They etch it down. They record it. Um, and that itself is amazing and awesome that the human mind 30,000 years ago um, was expressing that level of curiosity about their world enough that they wanted to memorialize that or make it permanent. That's pretty damn cool. And that's archaeoastronomy as well. Yeah. Well, and another thing, um, another archaeo word is <clears throat> one that I'm just now aware of, and I, I mispronounced it earlier. You'll probably recognize it now. Is archaeoacoustics. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, okay. What do you think about archaeoacoustics? Well, it's a real thing. Um, I don't know how, as an archaeologist, how I feel about it being a real thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, can we define it? Can we? Yeah. Uh, I mean my understanding of archaeoacoustics is the examination of objects and landscapes <clears throat> and objects on the landscapes that were purposefully set up to take advantage of sound or acoustics yeah yeah that's that's and there was fairly recently i think i remember reading a piece about stonehenge right and it says some dude saying well you know what if you whisper the... over here it bounces back over here and something ah. about the stones if struck they make a, a noise they yeah. they make a bell like noise or something you know and i i really i listen i'm ex i'm a skeptic and i'm skeptical about that if only because how in the world are we going to test that? Right. You know. Right. It, it, we don't. Are there painting? Are there cave paintings of people banging on rocks? Are there mallets that we don't know what the hell they were used for? And oh my God, the the wear patterns on them indicate that they were used to bash against rocks. As far as I know, there is zero uh, physical confirming evidence for any of this. So for me, at this point, the notion that right that there are sites that were built with the, their acoustics in mind um, is a just-so story. That doesn't right. mean I'm saying it's impossible or they're wrong or they're foolish to propose that hypothesis. What I'm saying is, well, hypotheses are cheap. The expense is in the, the testing and the, the validation of them. And I'm, it's not that I don't think – at this point, what I'm saying is I'm not sure I understand how we could actually – authentically test those hypotheses and i haven't seen a good paper on the academic side that really gets at that either i'm like you i'm like i don't it sounds cool not to not to make a pun but it, it sounds cool but how right. do you how do you even go about determining and then testing that you know 
And then, and then you also end up, end up, there are places that I've been out in the wilderness where the echoes are amazing. Right. Well, okay. So did nature do that intentionally so that we could say, oh, cool, it's echoey? Or is it just, well, you know, it's kind of a coincidence. And in this case, the way the thing, the the, the configuration of the, the landform, it echoes. But that's not why, it, it, that, that that's entirely coincidental. It's a lucky accident. And yeah. I wonder about that for places like Stonehenge and other sites where it's been claimed. It's just a coincidence, yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Well, but this term does get used with the fringe. Uh, it's become the new pet term in certain circles. Uh-huh. Um, not just for things like Stonehenge, but um, Mystery Hill. I know you're familiar with Mystery Hill. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I know you're familiar with the sacrificial table. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, oh, I know, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, uh, exactly. So apparently the chamber that the sacrificial table was set up over, uh, if you stand inside the chamber, not only would you... Now, this is all conjecture, but not only would <coughs> you then be covered in the blood of the sacrifice, you would could also talk or make noises, and the sound would echo up from below yeah. and sound like, quote-unquote, the voice of God. Right. You know, I, I think they, they call it the speaking tube, the speaking and so tube, yeah, probably. and it's kind of no, like, it's the yeah. oracle chamber, ha, huh. or yeah, well, the oracle chamber, but it's this, the oracle chamber is apparently is connected by this speaking tube to the surface where the sacrificial table is right, right, located. Right. And listen, um, these are all wonderful fantasies, but without any physical evidence whatsoever to support them, they are exactly those. And you know, the, the the sacrificial table at Mystery Hill is, in fact, almost certainly a cider press bedstone. Yes. So maybe that tube that we're all talking about being the oracle chamber and the voice of God was the tube through which they poured the apple cider into barrels. Um, well, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that whole sacrificial table oracle chamber setup thing is just that it's a setup. Yeah. Uh, that was perpetrated by the previous owners well, and continued by yeah. the owners currently. There's, there's, th- listen. There was a lot, a bunch of reconstruction of the site over the years, yeah. and I know that that um, that Jason Calavito, who's you know one of our favorite bloggers, Jason's a good, great guy, and then Jason mentioned something about the reconstruction of stuff at Mystery Hill, and I believe that the one of the either a lawyer contacted him or the actual owners of Mystery Hill, you, you know, check out on Jason's blog that they, they, they were all in a snit about how dare he say that there's any reconstruction. It's absolutely not true. But there's photo evidence. And that, there's, yeah, there's photo evidence. Exactly. So what I did for Jason was I said, Jason, I was there last year. Here's a picture of this feature. Here's a picture taken in the 1930s. Yeah. They're, they're exactly the same place. You can make out some of the same rocks. It's been totally reconstructed. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so, so that and that's a real problem. Well, but you can go real... to the Mystery Hill website and look at their pictures. They have they have a whole section of just historical pictures of the area, right. and you can see just right. from their own documentation how much it's changed. And understand that professional archaeologists and historians, especially in the late nineteenth century and early twentieth centuries, they did re- they we there's a lot of reconstruction. It's difficult to to walk through, and I've not been there. The, the great um, palace at Knossos on, on Crete, the Minoan civilization. Yeah. Evans, Sir Arthur Evans, reconstructed a lot of that and repainted a lot of that. And so archaeologists today walk around saying, you know what? We have a hard time. One of our, our big tasks is to disentangle 
what Evans thought the place should look like and therefore reconstructed it right. as opposed to what it really looked like. So when, when we, when, if, if we are critical of Mr. Hill, we're also critical of the work that Evans did at, at Knossos. I, so I'm it's, critical you know, of, I mean, I'm critical of modern reconstructions. I know that there's been, and this is not to slander um, the Ohio mound sites, but I know that there have been several reconstructions out at the Ohio, the different Ohio uh, earthworks, right. which um, to their credit, and this is why I don't freak out about it, I know that they have had the archaeology done and they've had the ground survey done and they right. have documentation um, otherwise, uh, just old sketches and, and right. old documents that show how the mounds looked before modern uh, construction got in there and destroyed a lot right, of it. Yeah. Um, so I'm that's that's how it should be done. Right. Uh, if you go to the National, um, what is it? National Hopewell, the Hopewell Culture National Historical Site, which is also called Mound City, yeah. which is this amazing necropolis with twenty mounds with a big wall around it. Um, that what you're looking at today is largely a reconstruction. During I think it was World War One, it was a National Guard camp, and yeah. they they flattened a lot of the mounds, and I think there was even like a railroad back behind it. But based on um, photographic evidence, they know what it looked like before people mucked it up in the 20th century. So what you're seeing today is a pretty accurate reconstruction of what it looked like. Yeah. Obviously, in the case of Knossos on Crete, um, we don't have, we have photo that. documentation, right? Well, and with Mr. Hill, that's how we know they've mucked a bunch of stuff up yeah. because we have photo documentation of the ruin that it was before it was reconstructed. And and this actually is a, a good term for us to be discussing is the whole concept of reconstructing archaeological sites. Right. It's it's a fantasy that a lot of people will have because you're like, ooh, I wonder what it looked like when. But unless you've got hard data to back that up, and and by hard data I mean you've mapped the 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 trench walls, you you know where the sites were and all that. Right. Um, yeah. You've got no business reconstructing anything. Right. Um. And if you go to, if you go to national parks, I mean, go to the Mesa Mesa Verde. Um. The the crews there are constantly working on maintaining uh, adobe walls. Those so things are. And sometimes you can tell based on the color differentiation that, oh, that's an old fix and this is a new fix. Mm -hmm. And they're doing that because without that, these would, of course, decay back into their their native elements. And people want to be able to see cliff dwellings and great houses. And so those are being – I'm not saying it's universally the case, but very often – there's work being done to maintain those so that when people go and visit those places, they still see the, the cliff dwellings in some something close to at least well, the original a, state in which they were found back That's in a preservation world. thing. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't put preservation and reconstruction. I mean, they can be the same thing, but I don't right. – I personally don't clump them together because preserving something that has been found nearly intact and doing the best you can to keep it that way – is one thing going in where you have leveled a place or where a place right. has been leveled and then building it back up like with what was done out at uh, angel mounds with a couple of the mounds out there right um but the problem the thing was is the archaeology was done and they reconstructed it based on what they learned from the archaeology sure. and from prior documents right anyway Absolutely. let's go to a break real quick and when we you come bet. back we will pick a new term I 
Archaeology and Ale is a free monthly talk presented by Archaeology in the City from the University of Sheffield Archaeology Department. That's where the archaeology part of Archaeology and Ale comes from. As for the ale part, the talk is held upstairs at the Red Deer, a great local pub on Pitt Street in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, on the last Thursday of every month. If you're in Sheffield, do come along, and don't worry, non-ale alternatives are also available. If you can't make it to Sheffield, never fear. You can listen to the Archaeology and Ale Talk every month, right here on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And now, back to the show. And we're back. And Ken, what's your favorite term? Well, this is one of my pet peeves. It's not so much a pet peeve, but it's it's um, the, fact that, the fact that people tend to misinterpret these terms. But when I give my, my dating methods lectures in my introductory archaeology course, finding out how old sites are, I always distinguish, and all archaeologists do this, I think, absolute dates from relative dates. Yes. And then I, my, my lame joke, all right, <laughs> my lame joke is it's relative dating in archaeology is not when you go out with your cousin. And, you know, that I don't think anybody's laughed at that in decades, but I get a kick out of it and I feel obliged to annoy people with that. But the deal is um, absolute dating, which is the term commonly used, although some people prefer the term chronometric dating. Yeah, I saw I mean, that recently in a textbook. Yeah. I was because like, what the what, hell is that? Well, but what the hell is absolute? What does absolute That's mean? True. That's true. And the problem there, I think, is that an absolute date or a chronometric date is any time an archaeologist can assign a year or range of years to an artifact, a feature, a site, a, a region, a, a culture. That's an absolute date. But absolute does not necessarily mean accurate, and it doesn't necessarily mean precise. So if, if we, you know, we're talking about sites in the Southwest where dendrochronology is a very accurate that is a very accurate and very precise absolute dating technique so that we can say this this adobe structure the logs in this structure were cut down in the year ad 1125 Mm -hmm. and so therefore in all likelihood this structure was built soon after 1125 and that's an absolute date um if i look at a coin in my pocket and it says 1993, that's an absolute date. But if I tell you that Oldowan tools uh, are found between 2.5 and 1.8 million years ago, that's still an absolute date, even though we're talking about a range of, of, you know, of more than half a million years. That still is an absolute date. Absolute doesn't mean precise. Precise meaning a very narrow range. Um, it just means I can assign a year or a range of years. I don't know that it's accurate. And that range of years can be, I can say, between one and three million years old. And that's still an absolute date because I've got relative dates. And when I don't have a number, all I can say is, well, this happened before this, which happened before this. Which We talked a little bit about stratigraphy in an earlier podcast. That is That is a relative dating technique. It's one in which I can say, all right. The, the, the stone tools are found in this layer, superimposed over that layer, up you know, in the floodplain, are these pot sherds, and then superimposed over them are these metal tools. And so I've got three different occupations of this site. The stone tools are on the bottom, the pottery is in the middle, the metal tools are on the top, and I know because of the way soil is laid down that that deeper level, which hasn't been disturbed, that must come before 
that intermediate level, which hasn't been disturbed because it's sometime, it, happened, it had to happen sometime after because the soil has been added onto by the flooded river after that first occupation. And then after that, that's, those ceramics were laid down sometime past, the river flooded, and higher up in that stratigraphic profile, I'm finding these metal objects. So there's one, two, three, the, 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 the stone, the ceramics, and the metal. And I don't know well how long ago were, were, were those stone tools. I don't know. Based on just what I talked about, the stratigraphic profile, all I know is that it's older. I don't know right. that that the first level is a thousand years older. I have I, I, I don't even know because it, the the stratigraphy doesn't work this way. I can't even simply say, well, each half an inch is a hundred years. A, a single flood can deposit a foot of alluvium. Uh, of silt and um, over here this other river valley a foot can, that that took a thousand years to 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 accumulate so all i can do in a relative date is give you an order now of course ultimately in every archaeological excavation you want to be able to come up with an absolute date that is both accurate and precise we are not always capable of doing that right so the so the deal is absolute does not mean we absolutely are sure of it does not mean it is absolutely a narrow band where we know the exact year. All it means is, well, it's we have a year or a range of years, which is why people don't like – some people say, make it chronometric because all chronometric implies is that we have some kind of a, of, of a number that right. we can apply to a site or an artifact site or whatever. Well, I mean if you break the word down to its basic forms, it's, it's basically – time of measurement so yeah it, yeah there you go there you go but the, and of course that's what we're looking for but we don't always have the opportunity to come up with a precise uh and and accurate number and and dating is one of those things that does get abused a lot especially in the the french groups um they're always pulling date ranges out of their rear ends that it's just all over the places uh and yeah, it's it's the not understanding that there's two types of dating in archaeology, and that both of them are used in tandem, right? And that neither of them is really you know pinpoint accurate. Um, I mean, it can be. You got a coin with a date on it. You know that coin was made in right. that year, but absolutely, that doesn't tell you if you find a coin in context with a site. I you know it it tells you that up to that point. Or, or, you know, no no later than then, or well, I'm all mixed up. But anyway, my point being is the coin gives you an idea of your date range, but it doesn't tell you your exact date. That coin doesn't date every object on right. that site. And although this is a little bit tangential, everybody should understand that, that our, most dates, <coughs> most of what, when we say a site is a thousand years old, really what we are saying is, we can't you can't date an archaeological site. What you can date are items at that site. Right. So when I say a site's a thousand years old, what, that's shorthand for when we excavated this site, we found a bunch of organic material in different features at the site. We sent those organics, bones and wood, out to a laboratory, and we got ten dates. All ten dates from the charcoal and bones indicated that those that those trees were cut down a thousand years ago that those animals died a thousand years ago so what we are assuming we are associating those specific dates from those specific objects with the site as a whole now when you've got 10 dates from 10, 10 different features 
at a small archaeological site, that's pretty good. But if you've got one piece of charcoal, you found at the corner of a site, right. that's the only absolute date you have, and you are you are associating that one date with the entire site, that leads to problems. And that's why archaeologists, now, if you see somebody, either a professional archaeologist or somebody on the fringe, who says, we've got a radiocarbon date, this site is 10,000 years old, right. be skeptical even if it's a professional archaeologist, because single dates, double date, you, you, want, you want a bunch of confirming, you want converging evidence, you want a bunch of dates that all point in the same direction, because a single date, multiple dates, you know, woodchucks burrow into things and True bring story. older stuff down. Um, forest fires from a thousand years ago can end up with charcoal that that percolates up in the soil through rodent activity or tree falls falls and whatever and you'll end up with stuff that is where the date is accurate for that tiny piece of wood but you have to be confident that that piece of wood is associated with that site um i've got we're gonna have a whole episode on dating to save some of this absolutely Okay, but so just but but that's it is important when we're talking about terminology when people say we have da- even just the, the term date or the term age understand that there's a lot there are a number of steps between us actually obtaining a chronometric date and being able to apply it to this particular site this particular time these particular people that's all exactly do we have another term we want to we want to jump on well, the, the term, and this is a term that, that's, it's not an archaeology term, it's a science term, but it's, and it's one we've talked about before, but it's one that's worth revisiting, and that's the word theory. Yes. I mean, how often do we hear that word misused? I mean, it's constant. And, and it's always, the misuse of the term theory is, the implication is that a theory is a guess, a theory is something we are not quite sure about. So it's and that and therefore my theory is as good as Sarah's theory because we're just guessing. We're just blowing smoke out of our ass. I can say that because Chris is not listening right now, right? Is that right, Sarah? <laughs> yeah, he's but, a big sensor. So in other words, th- and in the vernacular use of the word theory, that's how we mean it. We go, right? You know, are you are you gonna are you gonna go to 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 school tomorrow? And you go, well, in theory, but it's it depends on the weather and whether my car starts. So we're we're meaning it to use. Eh, I'm supposed to, but who the hell knows? Right. We don't. When we talk about the theory of evolution, that is not what we are talking about. No. In science, a theory is begins as like a, a, a hypothesis, which is in fact a kind of well, we're getting it, an educated guess is the way it's commonly yeah, defined. Hypothesis means what people use theory to me yeah hypothetically a lot of things could happen in theory they're not going to right so that by the time when we've got something like um the you know newton's einstein's theory of relativity or the theory of evolution that's something that people have when we use the word we have we have elevated a hypothesis to something quite beyond merely a guess or a stab. We said, you know what? We have tested this a whole bunch of different ways. Yeah. And with and in different co- with the convergence of different approaches. And they always point in the same direction. Right. And at that point we go, you know what? We elevate this to theory. 
Now that, and ultimately something becomes a law, right? And the law is like, no, no this is dead, dead certain. This is how the universe works. A theory, there are still unanswered questions. There are still mysteries. There are still things we, more things we want to know. But ultimately it's a, hey, listen, unless the universe is completely different from how we perceive it to be, this theory, in its certainly in its generalities, yeah, this is this explains something about the universe. Right. Um, not that it can't be tweaked, not that it can't be fixed, but it's not like a hypothesis in which you really are saying, "Hey, I've seen, I, we've observed one, two, and three. This is, I wonder if this is what's going on." That's a hypothesis. A theory is no. Oh no, we're we're really sure about this. So right. Evol- the th- the theory of evolution is not the guess of evolution or the suggestion of evolution, um, or even the hypothesis of evolution. It is the theory of evolution. Yeah, this is this is the way it happened, folks. And what we're doing at this point in science, in evolutionary theory, is we are kind of cleaning up the things that, we are, that are a little bit messy and answering the questions that we haven't yet been able to answer. But it's again, unless you know we're all actually holograms in some computer program or something like that. Uh, no, no, this is the way things actually work. It is a giant game of some. You know, there's actually a group of people out there who truly believe that all evidence points to us being a computer simula- simulation. Simulation, yeah. Simulation, yeah. Well, you know, like there, there are literally human beings. Who believe that every that we live in a matrix-like situation, and I'm just like, what? If you really truly believe that, why do you get up in the morning? I don't. Well, and then, you know, that's it is kind of scary. I mean, there are, there are people who actually programmed you, me and Sarah to be sitting here talking about right? simulation. Like you that's got nothing weird. better that's, to do with your time. Yeah, I, I, well, I hope. But then you know that's we have, that, that's the game we play in class about we we're talking about theory and hypothesis and science versus belief and they say well you know there are people who believe that uh, the universe everything you know really only began a second ago right and that everything else all your other memories everything else was planted in your in your mind you know then I, that's when I see people. Kind of, kind of, they, their eyes glaze over in class. Like, don't worry about it. I don't think that's the case. Yeah, that's a fun one to think about. I don't, I don't. That that'll keep you up at night. Anyway. Oh yeah, absolutely. So another concept or term uh, is the concept of a dig. The concept of uh-huh. the archaeological dig itself. That I think there's a lot of confusion. Uh, and I think that it gets abused because I think a lot of people on the fringe believe that they are doing archaeology, an archaeological dig, when in reality they're just doing cult science where they're going through the motions without understanding what they're doing or why they do what they should be doing but aren't. Right, right, um, right. And I think part of this is uh, there's... I think there's a bunch of things to it. I think part of it is there's two branches to archaeology that people are not necessarily aware of. Um, there's the academic branch, which Ken represents um, because Rock you have on. to. Because I you am, have I'm, to. Your I'm ivory tower. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and then there's the CRM end of it, which is the cultural resource management, which is 
Digging I, for dollars. That's what we call you guys. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at least you're not calling me a grave robber. That makes me feel better. Um, but CRM's only been around since like the mid 70s, maybe early 70s. Um, when did 106 get passed? Oh, now you're embarrassing me here. Um, uh, 69? Isn't that it's part of the National Environmental um, uh, Preservation Act or Protection Act? Right. That was that was 69, so it's somewhere around. We're looking at, oh, what is that? So the 70s. It's CRM's been around. Yeah, it's a long time ago. 70, uh, yeah. Um, CRM's kind of a new thing for archaeology. But it's also, yeah, as Ken says, it's digging for dollars, and it's uh, what it is and isn't that people don't understand is there's phases to CRM archaeology. Right. There's a phase one, which is a pedestrian or a shovel survey, and it doesn't look anything like what people think of when they think of archaeology. Uh, CRM archaeology doesn't start resembling what people conceive of being archaeology until phase two at the earliest. Right, yeah. Um, where we're doing slightly larger holes. And then phase three is the full-blown uh, excavation. Um, so I think that contributes to confusion uh, in what an archaeological dig could be or could look like. And then there's just simple ignorance. People don't actually... I mean, how many people in their lifetime have had the ability to see an archaeological excavation right. in action? You know, you, you see dioramas, you see an occasional mention of it in a movie or a documentary. I mean, even that Roswell one that we watched, what, a month ago now? Um, right. That actually had an archaeological excavation going on during it. And we saw, like, maybe five minutes of it. And it wasn't even anything that could show you what they were doing. I mean, we know the report was done, so we know what they did, but we didn't get to see any of it. Well, you, Sarah, you and I have to admit that watching an archeological excavation is kind of like watching paint dry. Is that for the vast majority of the time, it's, it's people scraping dirt really slowly. And that's not, nobody wants to watch that on TV. I think that, that, that one of the points I think you're getting at here is that is, that and we've we've talked about this before is that the kind of romantic view of an archaeological dig is very Victorian, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. a bunch of, of folks, and ev with every shovel, you, there's gold. You've you've uncovered another grave or a or a tablet with mysterious writing. Right. And in fact, what we're doing much of the time is moving dirt very slowly because ninety nine percent of the stuff that we find is not treasure; it's garbage. Well, it's and it's it's stuff that would not it's stuff that's value would not be recognized outside of a scientific context, right? Yeah. And, and that scientific context would be the archaeological context. But I mean, you say, yeah, you, if you were a if you were a lay person and you came up on an archeo, uh, archaeological excavation, like say a, an actual phase three, um, you would see people you know, dressed in a various form of looking like street folk, digging holes with trowels. Or if in a CRM context, we use shovels, but we are not digging by any stretch of the imagination. We do a thing called shovel skimming, which is a technique that just takes practice where you actually learn to take off millimeters of dirt right, yeah. with a <coughs> shovel. 
So you're not even digging into the ground. You're you're basically shaving with a shovel. It just it goes a slightly bit faster than using your trowel. Right. Um, but I've met people who can trowel just as fast as they can shovel. So, but yeah, I mean, you don't see what's happening, but we as the archaeologists do. There's a reason why we take the dirt off that slowly, so that we can see the dirt, the the stains, um, the root runs, in case there is something fragile in the ground. We don't just chop through it. Um, but if you right. were a layperson and you came upon a phase one, which is legitimate archaeology, all you would see is a bunch of people with backpacks and hard hats with shovels <laughs> and screens walking through the woods. It would look really, I, I know it looks really weird because I've had people comment about it. Right. Oh, sure. We know what we're doing. The people who don't have no idea. So yeah, right. I mean, it could look really bizarre or really boring from the layperson's point of view, but, um, and I think, yeah, it's just general ignorance and not ignorance in that, you know, anybody's trying to keep you from knowing what it is. It's just, why would you know that? And 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 it's not it's not entertaining. No, it's um, really not. It's not watching people excavate. Now, see, what will happen is on, on the TV cable, when they're showing real archaeology, real digs, real excavations, you, what you're seeing is when somebody is there with that shovel, with that trowel and that dental pick and the tweezers and the brush and right. they're exposing that artifact, that's the end of a very yeah. long process that may have taken two weeks of meticulous, excruciatingly slow And, and it's probably the last soil. couple hours that they have at the site too. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that always happens. So so what you're – so what happens is that the, the, the experience becomes very truncated. We're just seeing the the very end, the, the the denouement, right, of this long play, and so what that's that is why when when I get um, volunteers in my digs, very often they are enormously disappointed oh, yeah. that I don't give them a shovel and they're and, and okay as soon as I move this I'm going to find a burial, right? right. No, actually, no, that's not what's going to happen. This is a slow. The, the, the folks who who have that interest in archaeology that that's from essentially a kind of Victorian perspective. Those are the folks who after the first day, you never see them again. It's the people who understand and recognize, hey, listen, this stuff has been in the ground for a couple of thousand years, and we are going to do everything we can to preserve to preserve its integrity as we are exposing it. Those are the people who come back. Yeah. And that's good. That's, that's a dig. The other thing with the shovels flying and people, uh, you know, be on, on, on big big wingback chairs with uh, fans in their faces right. directing directing the uh, the the hoi polloi the, the, the not the hoi polloi but directing the, uh, the 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 poor folks out there to move dirt around that's uh, not that's not the way it works. All right, so we're gonna go to a break real quick, sure. And when we come back, we'll tackle another term maybe and do a break. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a different story to the traditional lines of archaeology, the Anarchaeologist podcast seeks the stories and ideas that are often overlooked or not considered real archaeology. Video games, anarchism, and archaeology in the middle of hostile areas. Host Tristan doesn't search under the rocks. He destroys them. Available on iTunes every fortnight. And we are back, and we are about to get meta. Well, here's my little story. All right, I met a, I met this. I may have talked about this on this on, on a previous podcast, but I met a guy. gave a, a lecture 
Um, and uh, he came after the, my lecture and show, I was about archaeological fakes. And he showed me these photographs he had of what effectively these, from what I could tell, these are just big ass glacial erratics. And he said, no, they're not erratics, whatever. He gave me his card, Sarah. And the card, <laughs> okay. in his card, it said in big letters, archaeologist. Now, the embarrassing did he have was- H- did he have eight PhDs after his name? He had no PhDs okay. after his name. And in fact, he actually spelled archaeology wrong. And I don't mean because he like left out the A. It, he actually had the card read archaeologist. There was no, he was missing an O. But anyway, when I talked to the guy, and he, he acknowledged this. Well, he had no training. He had no degrees. He had never taken a course. But he called himself an archaeologist and he had a goddamn card your business card saying he was an archaeologist. And when I, I tell that to students, they go, well, could he be arrested? No. And I say, uh, no. It's not like putting a shingle up in front of your house and saying, I'm a neurosurgeon, Dr. Kenny, I'll come here and I'll do brain surgery, I do it in my garage. That's illegal. Calling yourself an archaeologist Ain't nothing illegal about that. Anybody well, can say you're an archaeologist. And just to clarify that, there's nothing illegal about calling yourself a neurosurgeon. The illegal part of that is performing the neurosurgery without a <laughs> okay. license. All right, I'll grant you that. <laughs> but but now here's the deal, though, folks, that if you work, and Sarah is going to fluent with this and knows about this, if you are doing CRM work for the federal government, if, if you want them to hire you, or hire your company. The federal government very clearly defines what it means to be an, a professional archaeologist who can get hired to do CRM work and get paid by the federal government. True. So they really they have a series of requirements. You have to have this much training. You have to have this much experience. You have to have written site reports because they don't want to hire some bozo and. and and give them a whole bunch of money to do a site report that ends up being wrong. And then the project has to stop because, oh, my God, they didn't dig enough test bits. Oh, my God, they didn't even know to dig test bits. And so they are now – the project has started, the construction project has started, and we're finding graves or we're finding valuable artifacts, important things, and the whole project has to be stopped. So the federal government has regulations concerning – who they will hire to be an archaeologist. But the bottom line here is, yeah, anybody, you can call yourself an archaeologist and say, yeah, I do archaeology. Any, uh, anybody can bang on anybody's door and say, hi, I'm an archaeologist. I'd like to dig in your backyard. Now, you don't have to let them. I would recommend not. I would, exactly. But so understand that the term archaeologist does not have a legal meaning. Just because somebody says they're an archaeologist does not mean they've ever read a book taken a course or conducted any archaeological dig before i mean the the end of the 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 nitty-gritty of this is you as an individual can call yourself damn near anything with no legal repercussions the the problem the place where you start running into issues legally is when you start trying to practice whatever you're calling yourself like i could call myself a doctor today if i wanted to i don't have a phd but there's nothing stopping me from calling myself Dr. Head. You know, and it's kind of funny anyway. <laughs> yes, exactly. But the thing is, is, you know, I can't put that. I mean, I can put the doctor part down, but on my resume, when someone goes to check it over and they go, well, where's your PhD? I'll be like, eh, you know, and, and they're not going to hire me because 
it's not fraud. That's not, it's not a fraudulent statement, but I don't have the experience and the qualifications to qualify as a doctor in the field of archaeology or whatever field I'm trying to convince people I'm a doctor of. Um, And it's the same kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, the federal government does have regulations. If you want to do work for the feds, you have to hire people who are trained. And honestly, the training, the, the regulations aren't that strict. And if you're doing work for the private sector where you're, not you're working outside of the government you know it it gets even a little wishy-washier there i mean crm has its issues but right um, but that's but that's the important point here is that when you watch something on the history channel or the discovery channel or national geographic and under somebody's name yeah archaeologist that doesn't mean dick right (laughs) the bottom line it does not imply that they that they have any experience training or record in archaeology it's an attempt to appeal to it's an attempt to appeal to authority oh yeah uh, and it's a dirty dirty trick that gets used a lot especially on shows or or on fringe shows like that um take for example the term forensic geologist i was super excited when i found out that forensic geology was a thing guess what it's not. <laughs> I was really disappointed when I found that out. But there are certain individuals on television who call themselves a forensic geologist. And Scott, we won't we won't say Scott Walter's name, right? <laughs> well, and the funny, the even funnier. But that's, part, who, he, that's who he calls himself a forensic geologist. He it's does, like, but it's even, not like a secret. No, it's not. No, I, I just you know. He's litigious and I just don't want to give him fodder. But the problem is, because I'm going to continue on with this story. The the even funnier part about this whole little story is, does he have his undergraduate in it? uh, Yeah, I think he does. And And then he claims he's got a PhD. Yeah, that might be it. Yeah, I I think he has an honorary PhD, which was... Which is bullshit. Jason Jason Calavito has has, uh, done... Um, You know... A a, a blog about... And and Jason's points aside about, like, there's... There's uh there's a controversy of if that's even a real thing. It doesn't matter because it's an honorary fucking degree. It doesn't matter if it's real or not. It doesn't mean he knows shit about it. It's an honorary degree. They give really, these to people because they want you to feel good about yourself or they want you to give money to the school. How do you really feel about this, Sarah? I'm just, it astounds me how much crap got made about this, about, oh, this degree, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, it doesn't fucking matter. It's an honorary degree. But we're, we're getting we're getting away from the fact that in, in every one of these instances, bottom line is nobody's breaking a law when, right. when on a, a, a cable, a fringe cable show, somebody calls him or herself an archaeologist, a geologist, a cosmologist. Yeah. It's, you know, those, those terms really don't mean a whole hell of a lot. Now, when you see somebody is, um, you know, a Fulbright scholar with a degree in classical archaeology and 20 years of experience excavating sites and 400 publications, now we're talking about somebody who isn't necessarily always going to be right, but man, they're more likely to be right than somebody who simply put a shingle out in front of their house and said, I'm an archaeologist because I've got a shovel. Right. No, there's an old Monty Python routine about a guy who goes and applies for a job, and he wants to be a lion tamer. And he says, "Do you have, do you have any? Have you ever tamed a lion before?" And he goes, "No." And he goes, "What? Well, do you have any experience taming lions?" And he goes, "No." And he says, "Well, what gives you? What qualifies you to be a lion tamer?" And the guy says, "Well, 
I've got my own hat. Right. <laughs> he goes, exactly. I assure you, that's not enough. And it's the same kind of a thing. Uh, on this same, um, or a similar uh, uh, train here. Yes. The term archaeological site is another one that's really tough. When I, when, in my first day it's of more than It's more than two artifacts. Yeah. Well, but the, the thing is, the thing about that, though, is that when I um, define, when I give students like my, my first lecture in introductory archaeology, and I list thing, places that I call archaeological sites, and there's, I say, the, the Battle of the Little Bighorn Battlefield is an archaeological site. And they go, how could it be? That's only like, that's a couple hundred years ago. How? No, it doesn't make any difference how old it is. Uh, commonly, people assume that the, that an archaeological site, that again by law, has to be a certain number right. of years old, and that's not the case. No. Um, one of my colleagues excavates um, sites in Connecticut that date to the 19th century, right? And those are archaeological sites. There are folks who excavate. Um, Bill Ratchie, who collects in the Garbage Project. Um, used to collect modern garbage and analyze it as an archaeologist would. Yeah, that's that's archaeology too. Um, again, the federal government has a kind of flexible rule that in order for something to go on the national register as a significant archaeological site, it's got to be at least fifty years old. But what we're talking about the difference here is the significant protected archaeological site versus right. an archaeological site. Right. But even in that case. You could, on federal property, declare or, 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 you know, end up getting funded to do research that shows that this place that is 51 years old is a significant archaeological site. But for most people, how could a site that's 50? We had a guy in Connecticut who literally said, a guy in the state legislature, who uh, a site was going to be nominated to uh, the National Register, and it was only about 50 years old, and it was a, it was a historical archaeological site. And he said, I cannot, in good conscience, vote for anything as being an archaeological site that's younger than I am. Because <laughs> the guy was like in his 60s. And I said, well, no, that has nothing. Age is not a defining characteristic no. of an archaeological site. It's an important consideration when we talk about the site, but it doesn't have to be any number of years in particular. Right. An archaeological site is a place where people lived and worked and carried out tasks and left behind physical evidence of their activity. That's an archaeological site. Whether it's ancient, whether it's thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of years old, or if it's 30 or 40 years old, and um, and there's plenty of historical documentation, that still is archaeology. A whole subfield of archaeology called historical sites archaeology, where people are excavating sites where there's plenty of written documentation. Oh, yeah. Where the people who lived at the site may have left behind diaries. And my When we talked about the Lighthouse site in one of the podcasts, that site dates the mid, mid 18th century to the mid 19th century. We've got lots of, we have census records and, oh, and yeah. school records. That's still, that I, the Lighthouse is an archaeological site. I was, I was basically trained to be a historical archaeologist and a lot of historical archaeology is looking at documents that already exist before you right. even get to wherever you're going to excavate. And, you know, and it's legitimate archaeology. There are so many different subfields of archaeology. I mean, there's right. a whole subfield of archaeology um, that was explored. It's explored all over the place, but... One of my professors at IUPUI did some excellent work into the archaeology of the homeless, living homeless people. And they sure. would they would they would go to where and it wasn't <laughs> they weren't studying 
the individual homeless person. They were studying the encampments. They were studying where these people gathered. Um, just And they, they found all kinds of really interesting details about homelessness and homeless peoples. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah and I mean, and then there's, uh, what are some other really cool, there's a whole field of um, gaming archaeology that's starting to develop where they're, uh, they're actually using games as archaeological resources. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, archaeology's, this is the thing that people forget. Archaeology is the study of people. It's the study of humanity and the stuff that we make right. and use. The material remains of human behavior. Yeah. And that behavior can be anywhere, at any, virtually any time. Uh, that's archaeology. Yeah. And that's, that's what makes it so incredibly cool. And that's, and again, that's, so we've gone from the, the term archaeologist to the term archaeological site right back around to what archaeology is. Um, what the, again, going back to my intro class, when I give them the definition, I say, okay, all you, everybody's going to, you're going to, you know, it's students are like Pavlov's dogs. <laughs> if you say, I'm going to define this now, hey, all of those we are kids students who are, and we are that, trained from a damn early age to do that. Okay. <laughs> that, that, well, listen, man, that, that's when you pick up your pen, you can be doing all kinds of stuff, checking your Facebook status <laughs> and looking at your cell phone. But when a professor says, all right, I'm going to define a term now. Yep. The pens come up <laughs> down on the paper. And I say archaeology is the study of the material remains of human behavior, period. We're done. That's your definition. Yep. I even tell – I'm so obnoxious. I tell the students, all right, <laughs> on, your, on the next uh, multiple choice – on the first multiple choice question test, the first question will be archaeology is the study of and then a will be the material remains of human behavior don't even read b c and d i don't want anybody to get a zero on this exam if you get this wrong after i told you what the answer is right. i will i will track you down and and um and i so what i do is i say a is the material remains of human behavior and and b b is why are you reading b i told you the answer was a c the damn it you're just trying to annoy me <laughs> go back and circle a and go on to the next question but that, but I ask them when I give them that definition. I say, "What's missing from that definition?" And invariably, students look at me like, "Well, you didn't say how old it was." And that's when I say, "That's the deal. It doesn't. Age is not a defining characteristic of an archaeological site." And I, I also have to get them past the notion that some a site is more important the older it is. Right. So that a site that's a thousand years old, that's important. A site that's 10,000 years old is 10 times more important. No, that's no. not how this works. Um, and, and it takes a while for kids to kind of embrace the notion that, that we can do an archeological dig of the area outside one of their dormitories and learn something about the students who live there and that's doing archeology. span so archaeology is not restricted to time or place. Oh, archaeology man. is finding the is learning about people, like you said, by looking at their stuff, looking at the stuff they made, used, threw away, lost, discarded, or hid away. And you just gave me like the coolest idea ever. All right, what's that? Ah, but okay, so going to the dorms every year, the same dorm every year, and going through the flotsam that is left behind after uh -oh. every year and just comparing it across the years that would be i think that would be really tedious but it would be freaking cool when you got the data all done oh i mean you would certainly see i mean if you had a place on a college campus 
where people were really throwing stuff away and, and there was some way that it was getting covered over. So it was being incorporated into a stratigraphic record, stratigraphic record or profile, and you went and excavated it. Oh, I think you absolutely would see changes in technology oh, yeah. for sure. Well, that's because, why I'm saying go back every year at the end of the year or, you know, periodically um, throughout recovery, the year. Yeah. yeah, doing yeah. a real-time recovery. But yeah, if you had a place like that and you could dig down, you could even see like into the 70s, into the, the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s. That would be yeah. cool. Wait, in a sense, when we do archaeology, kind of, sort of, what we're doing is extracting unintentional time capsules. Yeah. You know, every school, every church, every library that you know we're going to build a new library we're going to put an addition on to the school they'll they'll put a time capsule in there you know they'll dig a big hole shove a time capsule down in there and people are asked to give us something for the time capsule that reflects or is representative of us right now right. and so somebody will put in you know like a back in the how sad that back in the day they might put in a vinyl record and now it's like Wow, gotta find gotta find a a a, a turntable to play it on. All of they're coming back. I was gonna say but that's not that hard, but that's not that's not hard. It, it, but how about an eight track tape? That might yeah. be a little challenging. But so people put mm. something that's reflective of this is us right now. This is what we're thinking. This is what we're doing. This is what's popular, and that's intentional though. And then people fifty years later will dig it up and go, wow, things were genuinely different. Attitudes, perspectives, technology, very different. But well, the great thing, yeah, the yeah. great thing with archaeology is that's an intentional thing. The right. the the tubes, you're intentionally putting what you want to be reflected that's about true. yourself. Archaeology says, "Screw you, I don't care. This is your trash. This is your life. This is the things that you didn't want people to know about you, and I can figure all of that out, well, a good chunk of it anyway." based on the materials that you were using and you you discarded and you kept. I can I get to see, as an archaeologist, I get to see how people were really living and not how they were trying yeah. to get people to believe they were living. That's an incredibly important point. Absolutely. That it's not it's not us self-consciously. This is what we want people 50 years from now thinking about us. It's because it really and for true, if you're putting in a time capsule, how many people are putting in bad stuff, right. stuff that you don't exactly. want anybody to know about? The archaeological record is not like that. The archaeological record is democratic and it's inclusive. It's the stuff that reflects how we really were and who we really were, even if it's reflecting stuff that we aren't that comfortable with people in the future knowing about. And it's it's not necessarily a negative thing. I mean, I actually have a story for this one. Um, my field school and my professor at IUPUI studied a historically black neighborhood called Ransom Place. Okay. And the problem with the area was is that um, back when the school was constructed and I want to say the early 30s through the 40s, I want to say, Maybe yeah. even as far back as the 20s. Anyway, the city was trying to get hold of that area, which was a middle class African-American neighborhood. Right. And they wanted that land. And so the city itself started all of these rumors that it was a blighted area and it was a ghetto. And this is where the poor blacks lived. And this is where they were doing the drugs and all the crime and all of that. Right. And they were successful in passing that narrative <clears throat> socially throughout um, the area and so they were able to devalue the land and buy the land for the cheap yeah. but when we go back and we do the archaeology we see that it's not true 
we see that it is a you can't you will never see race exactly in archaeology so anybody who tells you they can uh, is delusional but we can see that the area was affluent we can see that the area was well to do and that they were taking care of their properties and they were taking care of their yards and their houses i mean we can the archaeological record supports the idea that this was an affluent middle class area and there are a couple little telltale signs that would say probably these people were african-american they were not probably white and comparing that to the historical records that are on file they're two completely different stories. Isn't that, that, isn't that interesting? That really is. It's, and it's, it's not the only place that that's happened. In. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A buddy of mine, uh, Dave Poirier, who is a UConn grad student, PhD, did his PhD dissertation on a Revolutionary War encampment in Redding, Connecticut. Um, it's Putnam Park, it's a state park named for General Israel Putnam. And the park was an, a wintertime encampment of revolutionary war soldiers right. that is you know um you know our side the, the good guys right and david did a lot of historical research and there were diaries and a whole bunch of stuff about the life in um that that encampment and when he did the excavation of the site he found stuff that physically he could prove but that nobody ever mentioned and among the things he found he found that those soldiers were so poorly provisioned they were so hungry that they ended up killing and eating their own horses. Oh. And you don't find that anywhere. No historical documentation at all. Yet Poirier's yeah. got horse bones with cut marks, with butchering marks, with marks of the, the bones being in pots and stirred. These guys are eating their horses. And that was something that nobody wanted to hear or know about. And they kept it quiet. The archaeological record busted. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that this, this was a bad thing for them to do. Is the way they survived, right? But it was something that those soldiers weren't proud of, and maybe their their um, um, officers didn't want them to repeat to anybody, right. and so it was kept quiet. Right. But the archaeological record shows conclusively that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, the archaeology archaeology is archaeology is forensics and. Forensics and archaeology don't lie. What lies is the interpretation and a oh, lot of sure. times the historical documents. Uh, historical documents are not as accurate as people would like you to believe. Not in a great conspiracy, conspiracy way. I mean, lizard people aren't really running DC and aliens didn't really come down to Earth. But little details like that get left out. Something that could potentially be demoralizing overall. You know, you've got Union soldiers who are starving to death who have to eat their officers' horses in order to survive because the Union Army couldn't provision them. That's something that could could have potentially lowered morale all over, not just with those those soldiers. Right. So yeah, you hush that up. But the archaeology's not gonna lie about that. The archaeology shows that those horses were butchered and the horses were eaten and were not on. That's yeah. And that's that's so much more interesting than the sanitized version of what happened you know oh, yeah. this shows these are real people challenged existentially challenged are we going to live or going to die we have to kill the horses and eat the horses and that's and that's so much more interesting for anybody interested in what it was like to be in the, a revolutionary war soldier that is so much more revealing and provides so much more so much more insight than simply well we were brave soldiers and we did our we did our part well one more tangent and then we'll wrap up. But 
along the lines of the whole, you know, it's so much more interesting to know the actual details of being a soldier. Look at marginalized groups like women. We don't know a lot about women's life ways historically because you just didn't talk about them. You don't know how women dealt with their monthly friend every, you know, throughout their lifetimes because that just isn't something you talk about. The archaeology, however, does. We know sure, a lot yeah. about how women dealt with being female from archaeology. We know I've one of the girls I talk with on the uh, for the Women in Archaeology podcast that we're working on. She's written her paper on douching and douching paraphernalia. And I'm like, this is really funny. But at the same time, really fascinating once you start thinking about it, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah there are, there, absolutely. There are whole parts of history, and especially the history of specific groups, yeah. in which either it was considered so unimportant because it was well that's that's a woman's problem there's that that's too, yeah that's only what black folks need to worry exactly. about exactly so it's, it's unimportant so we don't write about it or it's considered gross disgusting it's not <laughs> it's not for polite ears right so we don't need to know about it we'd rather not hear about it well the life um, of children is another one of those things right so yeah but that's yeah. So yeah. Abs so the point we're making here is that archaeology is way broader, far broader than most people it most people believe it to be. It's not about digging up the tombs of rich um, rulers. Right. It's about revealing what really happened in the past because the the physical record has no particular agenda. Right. Not the written true. record does, or bias or whatever. Everybody yeah. who lived and died. You know, in theory, you leave behind physical evidence of what your life was like, um, and and that's what we're interested in: what life was really like. Well, Ken, I think we've talked this one over, and I'm sure we can have another episode on more terms as they pop up. Yeah, absolutely. This is the, this was great, Sarah. Another another fun podcast. This was fun. And I just I want to point out that every once in a while, Sarah and I are getting um, emails from people. Oh yes. Um, uh, very few of them threatening bodily harm, <laughs> and, a f and a few of them actually saying, you know what, this, this is great, really, we like it, we enjoy it, and I'm not here tooting our own horn, I'm just here to say, we we thank you for those, we really appreciate it, that's why we do this, so that we get, you know, a, a back and forth with folk, between folks who, who are interested in archaeology and interested in real deal archaeology, and that's what, that makes this all worthwhile, getting that feedback, so keep those um uh, Po those those emails coming. We appreciate it. Also, our producer likes it when we get fan mail, so it makes Chris happy. Well, there you go. <laughs> it makes Chris happy if you get sent fan fan mail and a check. But we're just asking for the fan mail at this point. No, actually, you can donate. <laughs> you can donate to the podcasting network. Um, if uh, Chris told me this, he said, if you're tired of the way that it sounds when we record then you only have yourself to blame because right. you haven't sent us enough money for us to buy nice microphones and headsets yet. Right. So when we get enough money. I'll build my own studio right. in my house. Yeah. So listen up fans, get on that. Yeah. You won't be hearing the motorcycles go by my house anymore. Or the cat what, howling at the door because he doesn't like closed doors. Yeah. Cats and closed doors. Yeah. Well, right. It's been great, Sarah. Thanks a bunch. It has um, been. Ken, talk to you later. Till next time. You betcha. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. 
Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.